We have embarked on a journey, an inner journey, for some of us a few months ago, and for some of us just yesterday, of discovery that offers us a deep chance to really better understand the workings of the mind and the heart. To be on retreat gives us a unique opportunity to see how and where the mind can free itself from grasping, from its habitual tendencies of clinging and creating suffering. It's a chance to taste that putting down of all the ordinary burdens. During our time here, the endeavor and motivation is really to strengthen the vision of the Dhamma. And I'm sure that many of you have come for that purpose. If you're here, it's definitely that there's an intention to deepen the understanding that leads one to see that vision of the Dhamma. It enables us to meet the reality of life very directly, so much more directly than when we are in the world. Just because we have this only task of meeting ourselves moment after moment. So tonight I'd like to talk about a teaching that's called the Four Reminders or the Four Reflections or Contemplations that turn the mind towards the Dharma. They're also named the Four Mind Changings because what they do is that they break down the illusion that we might tend to live with when we don't reflect deeply on the meaning, on the purpose of our life. And I'm sure that for some of us, we've reflected very deeply on what the purpose of our life is about. And we may each have our own little meaning, our own history that enables us to really welcome this inner journey and to favor, give a priority for some time to this investigation, to this inquiry. The first time I was offered these reflections, I was 23, quite a long time ago. And they had such a deep and strong impact on my mind, that they made me change my orientation. Which means that I really gave a lot more priority to this inner journey, to the Dhamma. There was a calling. Even though I was young, there was a sense of, oh, this is so much more meaningful than going for the job that I was supposed to take upon. And so it changed my orientation in my life. 
my Tibetan teacher, Dilgo Kinsa Rinpoche, that I've had for many years, until he died in 91, gave a very strong and very deep meaning to these reflections. And he would say to the Westerners specifically, you want the mind teachings, you want to work on the mind. Yet, he would never give mind teachings without these foundations. And there was a purpose for this. Of course, there was meaning behind it. Because he said that to really enable the mind to look in a way that it will see truth, that will incline toward the vision of the Dhamma, we need to know why we are practicing. We need to know how to reinforce our motivation. And these teachings, which are true foundations, you can say that they're pillars, help us remember when it's difficult, when we don't want the experience that is manifesting, to remember and to remind ourselves that it's really helpful to reflect to contemplate, maybe to take a few minutes a day, or it may be at the beginning of your sits, and to really call forth the sense of motivation of why did I come. So you can use these as you see fit. Really, uh, help yourself. They're available. Remember them. And if you don't, well, it's fine too. It may be that we're in a place that in our practice there's a strong sense of confidence and faith. And of course, these are not the moments when you need the reflection of a foundation of practice. So you're on your own here, more or less. So please know how to use what is appropriate. The first contemplation or reminder is to contemplate on the preciousness of this human life. And we can also extend this to this precious opportunity that we have given to ourselves to be able to be on retreat, to have time to fully dedicate Ourself to practice. You might know that in the Buddhist cosmology, it's said that in this world, there's not only one plane of existence. There's a big number of lifespans. They are called kalpas, which represent billion of years. And there's different planes of existence, such as you know the higher planes where they're gods, devas. We often talk about the devas. There's the Brahma realms where um, the divine abodes. There's the human plane and then there are all the lower planes of existence such as the animal plane which we know well and we can see very directly the animals. And then there's the hungry rose realm where craving is constant. Never is there a moment of satisfaction. Very painful. 
And then there's all the hell realms, fire and cold realms. 31 planes of existence, says the Buddha's cosmology. Well, if we are having a hard time liberating the mind and heart, it's not difficult to uh, sense because we're only fifth from the bottom up, meaning that there's the hell realms and then the animal realms and human realms. So it's not very elevated. Yet, when we sense where we are at, it's said to be the best place to be able to practice, that there can be an endeavor to practice. When Dogo Kense was teaching, he would give a thorough explanation of what it's like in every single plane of existence. And you would really uh, go and practice what it feels like to be in the fire or the cold hell realm. Um, There would be really ample descriptions. And of course, for us, it was just completely (laughs) unbelievable and a little bit crazy. So we'd have awkward eyes and inquisitive faces. Astonishment was in our minds. And he said, you know, it doesn't really matter if you are skeptical. I know it's true. You don't need to believe this. Yet, please practice. What I would like to con- you to consider is that it's very rare to obtain a human body. So there might not be many chances. This is really a time to use our time appropriately. Chogyam Chungpa quotes it like this. He says, Joyful to have such a human birth, difficult to find, free and well-favored. Well-favored because there is the possibility of awakening. There's just the right amount almost, at least there's some amount of happiness that we can taste. And there is also, as we all know, the amount of suffering that we can taste. And there's a possibility of nurturing the qualities that will lead one to freedom and to remove the suffering. And that's not possible in other types of existence. It's rare So you must think, I know that when I gave this teaching uh, some time ago, a yogi wrote a note the next day saying, you must be kidding, all I'm meeting is suffering. (laughs) How can you think that um, it's possible for me to meet happiness? And so, you know, faith is something which is really important to have trust and confidence. And it comes in practice as we practice and as we sit on our cushion. Just the fact of hearing the teachings, to be able to have the possibility of hearing teachings that 
will liberate the mind, will taste already some peace and freedom. And then we can develop the causes that lead to the highest happiness, the highest freedom. Just from that state of being in a situation which allows us to really feel for ourselves the good circumstances that we have. It will bring a sense of confidence and trust. And then awareness, the practice itself, just encourage us to look in the direction towards freedom. So we are here to cultivate and strengthen these qualities of heart and mind that lead to full awakening. What happens is that we are usually very much in a rush. (laughs) You know, we want it to happen very quickly. And of course, uh, knowing that this isn't the reality, there's a tendency for discouragement. So it's possible that we meet ourselves, and there needs to be an encouragement to look again and again towards how we are giving ourselves the necessary conditions and even inner conditions to transform the mind, to purify the heart. We've done a lot to be here. And so we do need to do a little more to really incline the heart and mind in the direction that leads to freedom. You know, even reflecting this morning while I was sitting on the number of beings that are in this very realm of existence, just like us, in this human plane, on this planet, and cannot spend even 10 minutes reflecting or just staying in silence like we're doing because they need to find food, because they need to hide from war, because they are in a situation of maybe famine, in a situation where they are faced with conditions that they'll look towards survival. It's happening in this world. And so it's just impossible for those beings to think of a situation like this one. And it's not to feel guilty. I think it's just on the reverse to think that we are so lucky and have the good fortune to be able to do this work and that we don't do it only for ourselves. We definitely do it for all beings because we're all interconnected. The Dalai Lama, more and more now, he says, every being is so connected to another being. We're all in it together. Those that can wake up will definitely be able to do the work for the many beings that are to come, the situation we're in it together. So it's not in any way selfish. And it's really important to remember that because I know that in the mind it can happen 
that we think that we're so fortunate. And what about the other beings? And it may be that we've heard the Dharma, and that because of conditions, because of causes, we just don't take it up. It's possible that due to causes and conditions, uh, the practice is done somewhere else. And that's fine too. It's not this only situation that helps us towards liberation. So karmically, there's something which connects us together to be here with this form and in it together. So considering this, we can spend a few minutes just holding a sense of self-respect, of truly valuing our sense of being able to sit firmly stable and grounded in this seat, just like the Buddha did. And maybe have a sense of gratitude to be able to nourish ourselves in this way. It takes a lot of courage and strength of heart does. To look inwardly every moment. One interview I had with Saida Upandita some time ago in practice I was describing a difficult experience. I've had had a hard time, and it was really painful going through a lot of dukkha. And I was describing all of this, and he gave me some advice and a lot of encouragement. And at the end of the interview, he said, please contemplate on your aspiration. Remember that you are practicing for liberation. Nothing less than that. No matter how long it takes. That's really having the vision of the Dhamma. And it hit this place in me of the heart. And it wasn't about forcing or pushing in any way. It was just enabling to meet what was in front of me and inside, not being discouraged. Nothing less than liberation. It enables the deepening of wisdom, and wisdom leads to peace. And of course, this is what we wish for. We wish for peace there's a possibility of waking up. So that is the wake-up call, this preciousness of our situation here, to reflect on that. The second contemplation, or mind-changing, is impermanence. There's a quote from the Buddha that says, 
the universe and its inhabitants are as ephemeral as the clouds in the sky. Beings being born and dying are like a spectacular dance and drama show. The duration of our life is like a flash of lightning. Everything passes like the flowing waters of the steep waterfall. Integrating fully this fact of life is truly challenging. We know things change. Of course we know on the surface. Intellectually, we know very well. We know the concept of change. And yet here we can know this truth of impermanence at such a level of reality. Living this truth at a whole other level. Why is it another level? Because it deconditions the mind from grasping. Impermanence is a doorway to liberation. So we can relax deeply into the truth of the moment. That really enables this embodiment of wisdom, the wisdom of things, seeing things arise and pass, cease and come about, the birth of the in-breath and how it disappears, the birth of the out-breath and it's gone, of a sound, of a meal, a thought, an emotion, a moment, a day. Really meeting this reality. This is the birth and death of all composed things. Death happens because of birth. You know, we think that there's a mistake often, and especially when we are challenged with death of dear ones, when there's attachment. It's really challenging. And it's difficult to integrate this truth. It's like a mystery. If you had someone that was very dear to you, and suddenly they're no longer there. What is left? The memory. That's another reality. It's not the truth. So it can bring some discomfort, even some fear, and definitely there is the fear of death, and yet it's a fact of life. This is from a Tibetan master. He says, death is real, and it comes without warning. This body one day will be a corpse. Our loves may come to an end any moment. All those who tenderly we cherish will disappear too. All conditioned things are subject to birth and death, said the Buddha. All conditioned things are subject to birth and death. We really don't take in that reality, that fact of life to the extent that it enables us to not waste a moment. 
just a few weeks ago, I was teaching in Brazil, and we have good friends there. And the day before we began teaching, we went to the beach with these dear friends and had a lovely day. And two days later, the man, our friend Nando, had a heart attack, quite a severe one. He survived. He's well today. But it's just amazing. I thought, wow, here again, you're hit by really happiness, the beauty of life, having fun, being at the beach, just having good moment. And you never know. You really never know. Nagarjuna, the Indian philosopher, says, Life is so fragile, no more than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How astonishing to think that after an out-breath, we think there will be an in-breath. Or that we will awaken after a night's sleep. I think we need a certain degree of ignorance. Otherwise, we couldn't manage this truth. And yet, a lot or too much of ignorance doesn't put us in the situation where we really look because we never know. So realizing this truth of impermanence, the Buddha really aspired to the deathless, to what is unconditioned, to what is not subject to birth and death, to change. And this is how he really placed his whole endeavor into looking deeply and reached the unconditioned. We can hold this same aspiration for ourselves. In each moment, we can notice here the fleeting nature of a desire of the wanting mind or of the non-wanting mind. How, in truth, grasping will not do it for us in the long haul. And we see it, and it's really an experience from within that will allow us to very naturally, organically open to the truth of impermanence and be able to meet it. And grasping weakens. Grasping weakens. That's simple. Now, awareness allows us to see through another lens. Awareness allows us to see the truth, enabling us to meet the flow of life, to just go along with the running water. The running water of the river doesn't stop. We often force ourselves going against the flow of the water because we're a little afraid. And so that's where we're going to meet our edge. And just rubbing ourselves with the rhythm of the flow at times and going against the flow. When mindfulness and wisdom are the guides, there's truly no preference, meaning we don't react 
to what is happening. And this means that we become intimate. Intimate with anger, intimate with aversion, intimate with disliking. How does it feel to notice aversion? How do I relate to this experience? Noticing the mood of the mind, because it's in the relationship that there's freedom. It's not about having a certain type of experience. It's really about how we relate. If we add a layer of aversion when there's aversion, definitely there's going to be more binding. So how is the mind relating to the experience of aversion, for example, of unpleasantness, noticing the feeling tone, noticing the changes, noticing what makes you shift in your days here as you are on your own, you have your own schedule, there's no bell, What makes you shift from sitting practice to walking practice? What makes you shift from walking to sitting? When do you decide to stop sitting? Is it reactivity that makes you make the shift? Well, wait a while if it is, just noticing. Notice exactly what it is that is happening in that moment. Maybe it's something that just has an urge. There's an intention just to move. Just to notice, not to pull yourself back. We often don't like change. And yet... It's absolutely important that change and permanence exists. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says, nothing remains the same for two consecutive moments. Heraclitus said we can never bathe twice in the same river. And it's true, we never bathe twice in the same river. Confucius says, while looking at a stream, said, it's always flowing, day and night, never stops. The Buddha implored us not just to talk about impermanence, but to use it as an instrument to help us penetrate deeply into reality and obtain liberating insight. We may be tempted to say that because things are impermanent, there is suffering. But the Buddha encouraged us to look again. Without impermanence, life is not possible. How can we transform our suffering if things are not impermanent? How can the situation in the world improve if there was not impermanence? We need impermanence for social justice, for hope, for change. If you suffer, he says, it is not because things are impermanent. It is because you believe things are permanent. When a flower dies, you don't suffer much because you understand that flowers are impermanent but you cannot accept the impermanence of your beloved one, and you suffer deeply when this one passes away. 
If you look deeply into impermanence, you will do your best to make this person happy right now. Do your best to feel the impermanence of that happening. Aware of impermanence, you become positive, loving, and wise. Impermanence is good news, he says. Nothing would be possible without it. Every door is open because of change. Impermanence is an instrument for our liberation. So look closely to see also how we like change when we've been in a great moment of suffering, even with a knee pain and it stops. Relief. On the momentary level, it really becomes so intimate, being so intimate with the fleeting nature of life, accepting more and more the changes Grasping is a release. Grasping is less present. What is left when there isn't grasping? Awareness is always present. Awareness and non-grasping, non-clinging, peace is present when there's non-grasping. The third contemplation is the law of karma. So here we need to understand that actions bring results. Wholesome actions bring forth wholesome results. And it may be a bit daunting, but we really need to see what motivates us in our life. And here it's perfect. You can really sense the thoughts that come And know for yourself, what are the thoughts that are coming up? How we relate to the moment and how we can become so angry and hurt ourself and how that brings pain in the mind. And the reverse is true too. How much when there's goodness, when there's metta, loving kindness, compassion, if there's suffering, how much there's an openness of heart And so we can meet these two forces, and it only depends on our own mind. It really feels like that, that when there is a sense of okayness or being okay, the whole world will look from that perspective, from that lens. And when then there's the lens of suffering, of dukkha, and everything's gray, we see even if it's a beautiful day outside, Everything will look gray. It's amazing how our own mind is reflected out there. So it's said in the teachings that negative actions just bring pain and sorrow, and that positive actions will just bring happiness and peace. What most conditions the results is the motivation behind the action. And we often speak in the teachings of intention, that intention before the action, that there's an impulse that manifests 
before there's an action. Here, because we slow down, hopefully, we'll be able to really see what happens in our mind. Often I've had this terrible guilt of seeing all these (laughs) terrible thoughts and, and maybe actions that I had done in the past. And for some time, um, I was only adding a layer of pain, not understanding that just seeing that will enable me not to uh, pursue my life in that way. With practice and trusting the Dhamma, there came a time when I would be very happy to see all the difficulties and all the mind states that were painful. Because every one of them was an open door to freedom, to be able to free the mind. And so this is really an essential point in the teachings, that it's the motivation behind the action that creates the karma, that counts the most. And so it can be challenging. I would advise that you begin by just focusing more on being aware and then basically notice what happened at the level of thoughts. Not to think about it or about or trying to figure out or analyze, but much more when there's a moment of clarity in the mind, we can see and therefore understand, oh, this is wholesome, this is not wholesome. What I'm about to do is maybe not the best thing. And to have a sense of care. And as the practice grows and matures, there's a wonderful way that we can relate to incline the mind towards the mind states that are helpful for us. And those mind states are, of course, patience, perseverance, generosity, renunciation, compassion, truthfulness, peace, gratitude. All these mind states, in fact, we're nurturing them here just by the fact of being here. And if we do see the opposite states of craving, of shamelessness, of envy, jealousy, pride, greed, fear, and all the others, there are many (laughs) more, Well, to see that as a passing state, it's not who we truly are. It just makes the relationship a little easier. So to care. And notice again, how does the mind feel in the presence of either one's? Just there already, we can sense a presence of how does it feel in the mind when there is the presence of anger? It's unpleasant. Do we want to nurture a state like that? No, but we are willing to see it because there's a purification process. I was here practicing the first year that the Forest Refuge opened And I practiced for, I think, six or seven months. 
maybe a little more. And I really noticed, and karma came to mind right away when <laughs> I had this story of um, practicing at night, and I was sleeping not very much. And I was doing the walking meditation in the dining room. It felt just more alive than the walking rooms. And so every night I would do the walking meditation. And there would be another yogi who would probably uh, be walking by. And she would go and do long walks during the night hours. And it was amazing because before she went out for her long walks, it was the summer. It was really hot that year. There were bugs, a lot of bugs, many, many different types of bugs. And this person, this yogi, before going outside and doing her walking meditation, would take a pile of glass plastic cups and trap the bugs on the floor. So you'd have all these cups in the dining room, and I'd be walking, doing my walking, looking at this, and first of all, remembering that I was just wondering, what was that about? And then I thought, how interesting, you know, she's maybe just putting them there, and then we'll liberate the bugs. The bugs were alive, right? And so these bugs, you would see, they were completely crazy (laughs) in those plastic cups. And then she'd leave. (laughs) Probably some yogi mind. (laughs) And I'd get really, there were minutes I was just like completely puzzled. But then the puzzlement went into kind of a little bit of anger, (laughs) saying these poor bugs. But then my mind, it was pretty focused. And I thought, hey, this is a great opportunity for causing good karma. (laughs) I'm going to liberate those bugs. And so I did. (laughs) And what was interesting, that it didn't happen only once. This was going on for a week or so. (laughs) And I never had the end of the story. So don't ask me (laughs) why and what was the purpose of that action. Um, I don't know. (laughs) All that I know is that it really created this wonderful opportunity to make good karma. (laughs) Instead, I could have, you know, gone on the side of really getting furious, infuriated, and angry, and not do anything about it. Uh, But no, that's exactly how very simple, in simple ways, in the moment, uh, there's a choice we can choose. In Asia, it's very often, in in Burma, uh, when I was there last time, there are marketplaces and there are many uh, birds and there's fish and they're, of course, uh, in captivity. And with our teacher we would uh, go and liberate the birds. You know, you'd just buy and you'd allow the birds to fly and the fish to go back in the lake. And it would be done also in many, many Asian countries. I know that 
Kalu Rinpoche used to do that every year as a way of creating good karma, meaning that one really liberates beings. Pema Chodron says, now is the only time. How we relate to whatever it is that we need to relate to creates the future. In other words, if we're going to be more cheerful in the future, it's because of our aspiration and exertion to be cheerful in the present. What we do accumulates. The future is the result of what we do right now. And it's so true. You know, we want to be happy, don't we? That's why we're here. Ultimately, I'm sure all of us are here to be happy, to be cheerful. We are creating the circumstances for this, or we're not. This is the context that we have here to really motivate ourselves towards ending suffering. And so we can hold the highest motivation, which is the motivation of liberation. But this may be kind of a really long vision of the truth of seeing things as they are. We can also uh, relate in a more direct way that we're here to maybe understand ourselves, understand our emotional life a little better, reduce stress, In a way, it's definitely going towards liberation as well. We understand the working of our mind and allowing every single experience to fully allow ourselves to bring that understanding, that wisdom. And even if we shut down because there's resistance, because it's too difficult, There's that intention. We hold ourselves in the motivation of that greater perspective of understanding, of feeling and caring for ourselves. Again, Pema Chodron, she says things so beautifully. She says, what is encouraging about meditation is that even if we shut down, we can no longer shut down in ignorance. (laughs) We see very clearly that we're closing off that in itself begins to illuminate the darkness of ignorance. And that's exactly it, you know, bringing the light into the shadow. That's what's happening. And as we have this deeper aspiration, we can also, even when we see how hard it is, we can share that aspiration and dedicate our practice to all beings. May the motive of my practice, may my motivation help or benefit all beings. And it changes the perspective and practice. It changes the relationship that when we connect to bodily pain or emotional pain or the mind that is going crazy, it is for the benefit of all being that we are together in this. And seeing the truth, understanding the truth, is a universal task. Last one is 
contemplating the imperfections of life or in the traditional text it's spoken of the defects of samsara which means pretty much the same thing I think that um, I won't talk too long about this because I think that if we're here we definitely have a sense of the limits or the imperfections of what our life can offer and we have so much we have so much more than so many beings on the material plane most of us have everything we need at least even if it's not what we desire because desire always wants more (laughs) we probably have everything that we need but we meet imperfection because nothing is perfect we meet the fact that we want to be successful and we don't want to fail we want only pleasure and we don't want the pain we know that so well and yet we are here because we know that whatever it is out there won't do it for us so it's remembering and that we're here to relate from a space of allowing the relationship of non-preference that we can meet the imperfections here we will have them there's bugs out there there's mosquitoes and there's flies and um, not every day are we going to have sunshine and we are certainly going to have unpleasant mind states that we don't like you know even here in this extraordinary beautiful place (laughs) it's uh, a paradise for practice for meditation there's silence and yet the mind is going to have the tendency to push away to not want life will never be perfect that's the way it is it can't bring what we want but what we do understand is that we have the capacity to transform the wanting into the allowing and from that place of discovery of interest of just seeing things as they are then there's again the possibility of meeting the freedom the non-grasping in a very direct way we'll notice this that when we stop whirling and wanting it's the end of grasping and it's the end of pain so we can renounce wanting in a true way now we can't decide to renounce wanting that's the problem how often do we want to decide something and how incredible it is that it's going in the opposite direction that the more we decide something we can't get up today and say okay I'm going to decide today I don't want to want (laughs) it doesn't work this way right so we're going to have to meet the wanting we're going to have to really meet that state which is not permanent thank goodness 
So meeting the resistances. And everything is done here in a way that we do renounce things that are there, just for that purpose of simplifying and so that we can have an interest in meeting those places where we know we resist. And in all my retreats, I've found new places of resistances. (laughs) That's the way it is. I don't think that there's one retreat where I can say, oh, yeah, it was perfect from the beginning to the end. But there's learning. There's an incredible learning. The Dalai Lama says, the places where we most suffer are the places that liberate us the most. So welcome. (laughs) Welcome, Dukkha. You know, one moment it will appear as if we are immersed in a dark room, like totally entangled, involved in the contradictions of identification, of holding on, of not wanting, of pushing away. And one moment it will appear as if we're in the open air. And both of these happen. And when we are in the open air, there's an appreciation of the light and the openness. And there's a feeling of the freedom that lies in the truth, nowhere else. And these moments inspire, give us the aspiration to look a little more, to continue to keep looking, to see the truth. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, we are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. And awareness, mindfulness helps us meet everything. No part left out. And it begins by really allowing ourselves to contemplate deeply, to contemplate our motivation. We came, we're here, even if it was three months ago, or yesterday, keep looking, keep being interested, curiosity, a freshness of mind is extremely helpful. So reminding ourselves of the preciousness of this human birth and the preciousness of this circumstance reminding ourselves of the law of impermanence, of change. Death can happen any moment. The law of cause and effect, of karma. Cultivating the good. Reminding ourselves of the limits or the defects of samsara, the imperfections of life. that nothing out there will really do it for us. And that we know. But to remember when there is wanting that emerges in our minds. And so we have a choice. And the choice is to create the circumstances that will enable freedom or to create 
more circumstances that will create suffering. This is the power of the Buddha Dhamma, of the teaching. A huge power. When it is put into practice, like we're doing here in intensive practice, it's very precious. As Sayadaw Upandita would say, there is no moment to waste. And he wouldn't say that out of a sense of force, but really he believed, and I think that is the one teacher who really believed that it's possible to liberate the mind from suffering. He deeply, deeply gave those of us who practiced with him this transmission of Yes, it's possible. If one dedicates wholeheartedly to the practice, it's possible to liberate. So may your practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.